the land in the spring, the local native tribe, the Wampanoag, taught them how to farm, how to bring in fish, how to sort of provide for themselves. And the Wampanoags saved the rest of the pilgrims. So three years later, when they finally had a decent harvest, they had their first big celebration. And so the pilgrims invited the Wampanoag, and 90 of them showed up with five deer. And the 53 pilgrims that were left, they provided the rest of the food that the Wampanoag taught them how to harvest. And here's such a beautiful holiday because that first ever Thanksgiving, it was a week-long celebration. They prayed together. They wrestled together. They played games together. And they danced together for a week. Two totally different people groups coming together and wrestling. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds like Bible school. This sounds good. And I'll tell you what, this beautiful image is the exact image of the kingdom that Jesus calls us to pray for when he says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is the kingdom. We get to be a part of that and pray for that and contend for that. Listen to this kingdom. By the way, we're going to be doing a little minor study this morning in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, bring them out. We're going to do a little, I guess a tiny little... um, studying the book of Revelation and just what that kingdom looks like. So go to Revelation 21. Listen to to the description of the kingdom that Jesus calls us to bring down. This is beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, remember that. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So in this description of everything being new, there's a metaphor used there that for us today in Kelowna, it doesn't make much sense. It says there will no longer be any sea. This is a non-physical description of heaven, and it says that there will be no sea. You see, the sea is a Jewish metaphor for separation between people. They would have fully understood that. Sea meant separation between nations. The ancient Hebrews did not develop a sea trade because their shoreline was rugged and the Mediterranean was violent. So on these seas, they lost thousands of people. The sea was known as being the place that separated nations. They didn't even want to enter the sea. They didn't build any ships as a result of this. So for them... That ocean right beside them represents a massive separation between them and other nations, them and other people groups. So in this kingdom of heaven, when it says there's no sea, they fully understood no separation between people groups, no race, just his children. Oh, this is beautiful. Go to Revelation 7. Listen to this. After this, I looked, 
And there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count. Sometimes we read scripture and we don't allow ourselves to just go into the narrative. Listen to this. There's a multitude. We're talking a sea of millions as far as the eye can see. Multitude. Millions upon millions. Just a mass of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice. Now, millions of people crying in a loud voice. When you cry something, there's emotion, there's passion. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, this is the kingdom. This is perfect unity. No race, just the human race. Every nation, tribe, and tongue together, worshiping, multitudes. Oh, we need to fight for this, and we get to fight for this. This is the kingdom that Jesus told us to contend for. I love this. But this is so far from our world, we do see massive separation between people groups, don't we? I mean, right now in the U.S., if you watch a sports game, You see lots of the athletes no longer standing for the American National Anthem because what they're doing is protesting the police state because of all the the shootings of the African-American men by the police. What they're saying is that this this really is just representing just a deep-held, I guess, just stance of the heart, a prejudice that is so innate in us. And right now we get to watch the presidential election For only two more days, praise the Lord. But as we watch here from Canada and look upon an entire nation that are fighting over things that are just seem so absurd, don't they? A survey of evangelicals in the US found a staggering support for a complete ban on all refugees. A staggering support for a Muslim registry. And an actual wall to create even further separation. And Philip Yancey was just speaking out and saying, how in the world did we get here? How did we come up with a stance that is so against the gospel and so against the kingdom as outlined in scripture? How did we even get here? And we in Canada, we also live with deep scars, don't we? In one of our northern communities, a little community called Apawatiskat, 11 youth attempted suicide in one evening. Now, this is a community that has less youth than our youth ministry in this church. Imagine if in one night, 11 of our own kids attempted suicide. It would reveal a deep hurt, wouldn't it? We would say, what is going on and how do we help? You see, in this northern community, the housing situation is terrible. The drinking water is horrible. There's massive drug and alcohol abuse. And so often our response is simply, then stop using drugs. Stop abusing alcohol. Why are you choosing these things? There's a 2012 Aboriginal people study, and they found that the main cause is actually the residential school experience. An entire generation of kids were removed from their parents. I want you to imagine that. So an entire generation were never parented. They never had a mom and a dad. They never saw how to raise family. They never had traditions. Their culture was stolen. So when these kids grow up and have their own children, 
They have never seen parenting modeled, ever. They have no idea or baseline. You see, here's the thing, is that it's not their fault. And they need our love, and they need our respect, and they need our support. I really believe that the church needs to be the one at the forefront of just building bridges and just building support. Did you know that the vast majority of our northern Aboriginal community would call themselves followers of Christ? The vast majority. These are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and they, they're desperate. But so often, we view them with an otherness. We view them in the same way that they're just a different people group. And globally, we also live in a divided world. When we went to Africa, we went to this little Muslim village called Garbatula. And they were so afraid of Christians. They were terrified of us. Imagine being terrified of my wife. They believed that we were the devils. They honestly thought that Christians were devils. We walked into a village and they'd never seen white people before. And they were just like backing up from us. We went into this little church and the pastor there said that before he himself became a Christian, he thought that Christians were devils. He met a Christian and actually looked behind him to see if he had a tail. Like, actually... And in this little group, as we were sitting in a circle, they wanted to combat this. And a recent convert, this little girl, said, I have a really great idea. This is what we'll do. She said, let's invite them over to our houses for dinner so that they'll see that we're actually human. And I was thinking, oh my goodness. This is so distant from the way that we think. Because here's the thing, is that we view them as the devils. We're terrified of them. We view them as the source of terrorism. You see, we live in a world with a vast metaphorical sea. Since 9-11, we've killed one million Muslim people in airstrikes. And each one of them has a family. And each one of them has a story and children or parents and one million stories goes an awful long way when each one of those stories is spoken over the years. You see, as a result, there's so much fear and hate that's been created in our world, and I think we all see that. Our military spends a lot of money on jets as a result, and our schools have to have bake sales just to put textbooks in our classrooms. That doesn't seem right. But see, here's the thing, is that we as the church... We are bearers of a great hope, are we not? Listen to this. This is Acts 17. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Listen to this. We are all from one blood. He made us all from one man and one woman. The Genome Project revealed some crazy truths, but it also revealed that if you can trace our roots along the Y chromosome, you will find a single mom and a single dad. This all but proves the creation narrative in the, in the book of Genesis, that Adam and Eve were the beginning of creation, but it also proves that we are all brothers and sisters. That's astounding. We are not different races. We're the human race. Listen to this. This is fascinating. This is in the King James Version. Genesis 5, verse 2. It says, male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. 
that word Adam is a word that means ready or red-faced. You see, Adam was not white, and Eve was not white. Jesus was not white. Moses, not white. Abraham, not white. Santa Claus, white. But he's imaginary, and he was created by Coca-Cola. You see, so often in the West... Sorry. If... <laughs> oh, my goodness. My daughter, she's uh, in grade three, and she told her whole class Santa Claus isn't real. So I'm that parent now. <laughs> but have you ever noticed that in the West we can be so ethnocentric? We can sort of have this view that, that there's us. And because of that, whenever there's ethnocentricity in any sort of people group, which we definitely have if you look at our media, it creates an us versus them. And so I think it's important to recognize that that is the world that we live in where we do have this deep divide between how we think the world actually is, even as far as proportionate race on this planet. It's so interesting to me. But the reality is, is that we're all brothers and sisters. And there will be a day when there will be no sea. There will be no separation. And this is the glorious image of the book of Revelation. So I want you to imagine this. So John, who gets this revelation, he's in jail on the island of Patmos. And John was just boiled in hot oil. So John is laying on the floor in prison. He is probably infected on the brink of death. And he is probably so full of anger. Because he just got boiled in oil because of what he believes and who he is. He'd be so mad. He likely watched the other disciples get killed. Thomas got skinned alive. Mark got dragged by horses. Peter was hung upside down. And Jesus, he was so close to Jesus. They watched them spit on him. The Romans, the others spit. They hung him naked on a cross. They ridiculed him. They used racially loaded terms against Jesus. And he loved Jesus. There's scripture that says that he leaned and reclined up on Jesus. The King James Version said that he laid on his bosom. <laughs> In other words, they snuggled. They were close. And he watched Jesus die. He saw him resurrect. But he also watched him die. They heard what they said to him. So I want you to imagine a John now who is hearing about what Saul is doing, that he's dragging Christians out in the street and killing them, he's probably so full of hate, so angry. And Jesus walks into his prison cell, and he shows him an image that changes everything, that fills him with hope that is so unbelievable and powerful. And hope is powerful. A researcher did a study called the Rat Study, and this is what he did. is that he took a container of water with high sides, and he placed rats in it to see how long that they could live before they would drown. They found that rats could swim an average of 15 minutes, and then they would drown. So then they took a second group of rats and put them into the bin, and they found that this group of rats, if hope was introduced, was very different. At about the 15-minute mark, he took them out of the water, dried them off, gave them some food, and then put them back into the water, 
That second group of rats lasted 60 hours. 60 hours! It's a huge difference. The difference is hope. You see, the second group realizes that at any moment, there could be deliverance from above. At any moment, this hand could come from the sky and bring me out. So I'm going to keep going a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer. Hope is powerful. So here's the thing. John is about to see what Stephen the martyr saw. Stephen is getting rocks thrown at him, breaking his face, his jaw, his teeth. And he sees an image that gives him such hope that what does he say? Forgive them, Father. And his face shines like an angel. What did Stephen see? And what did John see? We're about to see that. This is going to blow your mind. This is Revelation 4. Listen to this. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders, now remember that, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns down before the throne and say, you're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This is what John sees. This is what Stephen saw. And here is what they saw. Those 24 elders, that is you. You are there. You're one of the 24 elders. You see, the throne exists outside of time. The throne exists before our time, during our time, and after our time. So it is the future for John and for Stephen, but it's also their present in a way of thinking and speaking. And it's also yours because you are one of the 24 elders. In Revelation 1, it says he's made us to be a kingdom of priests and elders. And it's completed during the death of Jesus when the veil is torn and we're all priests and elders. And in Revelation 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb, it says that we are all wearing white and we have crowns because we reign with him and we rule with him. And this is where we lay down our crowns. And it also says that there's 24 thrones around the throne. In apocalyptic literature, 24 represents the complete body. That means all of us for all time. When it says 24 elders, it's meaning every elder, every priest for all time. That's you. And that's John. And that's Stephen. And so they get this image that changes everything. He's an infected mess. He's afraid and tired and angry, and now he sees his future. He's worshiping with people of every nation and tongue, and there's no sea. This is what Jesus said. He said, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. John would have heard that. Stephen heard that. So in this image, you're like, that's what Jesus was saying. That's my future. And here's the thing. Because Jesus told us to pray for this kingdom, it's very possible in our day. 
he wouldn't call us to pray for it and contend for it if it's impossible. And we're told to pray for our enemies because this is inviting that kingdom into our hate. And hate can never win. There was this girl who came on the ark and she confessed to me the first night. She said this. She said, I hate my mom. I hate her. And she said, I can't even, I don't even know how to go about living because I, I actually have hate for her. And so we just, I just sat there for a moment and I just was like, God, where, where do we go with this? I know what the Bible says. We know that, that we're called to pray for our enemies. And so that's what we decided that night. We said, we're going to pray for your mom every morning and every night. And we both agreed to this. And on the Friday morning, she came up to me and she said, I, I've got some crazy news. She says, I love my mom. How did this happen? I said, well, I guess, I guess the Bible's right then. <laughs> we can always trust the truth of Scripture. As soon as you invite the kingdom into our hate, the hate goes flying. Light and darkness are not even close. When you walk into the bathroom in the middle of the night and turn on the light, it's not like there's an epic struggle for that bathroom. Who will win, light or darkness? It's over in a second. Light is so superior to darkness. It's not even close. You see, here's the thing, is that the fruit of his spirit is love. And because we know that he calls us to love all people because we're all one blood, we know that his love makes us love all people. That his spirit gives us a love for every different nation, tongue, and tribe. For such an amazing hope, there's a special word that sums up the sheer joy of this. There's a word reserved for this moment, and this word is going to surprise you. As you read scripture, there's a powerful tool to translate scripture and to understand it better. It's called the law of first mention. Whenever a word is first mentioned, it brings extra emphasis to that moment, and it helps define what that word means. For example, the word passion is referred to the love of Jesus on the cross. So to to understand the word passion, we have to understand it in terms of the cross. The word that we're about to see for the first time is hallelujah. It's only ever used prior in the Old Testament. This is the first mention in the New Testament. Hallelujah meaning praise and Yah meaning Yahweh, the Lord. Listen to this. This is Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Here's that great multitude again of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders, that's us, that's you, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder. Now understand, this is before... The creation of jets, rockets, sound systems. The loudest thing that they knew on earth was thunder. So here's John seeing this image. 
And he says, in other words, the loudest thing imaginable, thunder, rushing waters. That is how loud they are shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. This is what John saw, this multitude shouting hallelujah. I want that kingdom like right now. This is the kingdom that the church gets to usher in. A lady named Heidi, who adopts hundreds of orphans in Africa and is known as a spiritual heavyweight there, they say that daily she's healing people. Daily she's delivering them from demonic presence. And so what happened was a witch doctor came because she had such great favor in the community and was so well known. This witch doctor and his wife showed up to kill Heidi. He knocked on Heidi's door, and she opened it, and he was standing in her door, and he had an enormous snake, a deadly snake, and was going to kill her with it. And his wife was standing behind him. She was shouting curses. This witch doctor had sharpened his teeth, and he had bloodshot eyes, and he was going to kill her. And Heidi opened the door and saw him. She looked at him right in the eyes, and Heidi said this, She said, come here. You look so tired. And Heidi went to him and just wrapped her arms around him and he started to weep. She then said, go and grab the shovels behind my house. We're going to dig a pit and we're going to kill your snakes and bury them. And they did that. And then they sat together and she prayed with them. She led them to Jesus You see, here's the thing, is that Heidi saw in him his humanity. She did not see a witch doctor. She did not see a man of a different race. She saw a child of God. She saw a human. You see, we were created for this. This is our human nature. And every single one of us in this room, when we are filled with the Spirit, this will become... Our primary nature. Scripture says that whenever we're filled with the Spirit, that we prophesy. Now in the Old Testament, what was a prophet before the canon of Scripture was closed is now an apostle in the New Testament. So prophecy has a very, very different purpose today. This is what the purpose is today. This is 1 Corinthians 14. It says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. This is speaking somebody's identity into them. It's seeing who they were created to be and speaking those words to them. When we were in Portland, we had the most unbelievable experience, and we came across this one um, group of men. There were two African-American men, and we went and we just started to pray for them, and we just were visiting them. We actually sat there for a couple of hours, and it was the most beautiful time, and, and, and our, our kids started to pray for them. And it was this scene where there's a big circle just in the middle of Portland. And, and all of a sudden, I, I opened my eyes and looked around, and we were surrounded by other people with their cameras taking our pictures. It was this huge commotion in the middle of Portland. And, and one of the, the, the people who was taking our picture came up and said to me, they said, this is so beautiful. It's so rare. <laughs> and then they walked away. And I thought to myself, This is church. 
this is what church is. We speak life and identity into each other. We spoke words from God to them. That's prophecy. And I believe that they spoke words from God to our kids and to me. This is church. And we get to do this with our children. We get to speak identity into them from their father and creator. We get to do this to our siblings. We get to do this to our parents, to our co-workers. This is what church is. Scripture says encourage each other daily because this is what removes the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we sin when we forget our identity. We sin when we lose our confidence in who God created us to be. When we stop trusting him. When we know our true identity, the deceitfulness of sin just washes off us, doesn't it? This is church. And let me ask you this, is how as a church can we speak life into our aboriginal communities? How can we speak life into those in different churches? Build them up and strengthen them. How do we speak life to those of different religious beliefs? And our neighbors. And like Heidi, see the humanity in everybody. Imagine bringing that kingdom to earth where there's no separation between nations. I want that. We get to usher that in. That's our identity as the church. This is who Jesus said we would be. We'd be known for our great love for each other. Not our great love for those in our family. Not our great love for those who look like us or the same color as us, but for all others. We're going to just pray. We're going to take communion together. Communion is a very powerful thing. Jesus on the cross, as he is getting tortured and, and killed for being different, said, forgive them, Father. And when we take communion, we are also stepping into that sacrificial love where we say, forgive them, Father, and we bless And I honestly believe that every time we take communion, Paul says we need to check ourselves, examine ourselves, and see if there is any hate there. First Peter says that if we don't have love, if we hate anyone, we are not children of God. It's that simple. If we have hate, we know who we are and who we aren't. And so I invite you, if you have hate in this place, bring the kingdom into that hate and pray for that people group Pray for that person. Pray for whoever that might be. And then as you come forward and as you take communion, you can simply just lay it with Jesus and say, you know what, I can't do this, but I know that your kingdom in me can help me overcome this hate. And let me encourage you to start speaking words of life everywhere you go to everybody. This is a game changer for us. If you're having problems with your kids, start speaking identity to them constantly. If you're having problems at work, speak identity into those who are causing you the problems. It's a beautiful way to live, and it's, it's the way of Jesus. So let's just spend one minute, and I'm just going to invite you to start to just pray for anyone who you view as other, or anyone you feel anger toward or hatred toward. And then I'm just going to close in prayer. So let's just take one minute and invite the kingdom into our hate.
Jesus. I thank you for the great hope, Lord. God, I thank you that we are all one blood. God, I thank you that our future and and our present is one of complete unity, Jesus. One of zero hate, God, and no separation, God. God, help every person in this room to be an instrument of your peace, God. Help us be those that just speak life from our mouths, God. Identity like Heidi. God, as we just share in your death, God, as we lay down our prejudice, our sinful hearts, our hate, God, you say that we also share in your resurrection, God. And we get to share in the great hope that is your kingdom alive in us, God. Lord, I pray now that as we take part in this ancient tradition, God, that your spirit would just bring vitality to our spirits, God. And a great love, God. I pray for the fruit of love in this room. God, I pray that we would just overflow with the love, God, that does not ever see otherness. God, we just want to give you our lives, and we thank you that you invite us to be a part of this unbelievable movement. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Amen. So I invite you, we're going to sing. We're going to sing. <laughs> and, um, and just come forward, or there's also at the back there, and, and just just lay down. God's been working on you and and just and just put on the new life that he he offers us in the new kingdom so let's do that together